Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, 17-34, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you think, or do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you, not, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the other judgment. One is hungry. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, you guys can be seated. Let's pray. Father, today, uh, as we look at the church's meal instituted uh, by your son uh, 2,000 years ago, that's continued throughout thousands and thousands of years in each of the gatherings of various local churches. Lord, we just ask that you would reveal to us uh, the truth of your word, that you would show us that the supper is a matter not only of our relationship with Jesus, but it is a matter of our relationship with one another, that it is the church's meal, that it is our meal, that is the meal that you proclaim over us the truth of the gospel, not just individually, but communally. So we just ask today that you would uh, show us more of your glory in your son's face. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so in the, the past couple of weeks uh, since Easter, we've returned to our vision series um, focused on the gathering part of the going, gathering, um, and teaching. And again, under the, the vision document that we handed out, gathering, we kind of defined this section of our vision as this. We glorify God in gathering as God's elect, sharing together in worship of our Lord Jesus and showing the love of God shed in our hearts toward one another. Um, so last week, uh, Pastor Joe preached on baptism, the sacrament of baptism. And this week, we're going to preach on the sacrament, the, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Sometimes it's called communion, some kind, sometimes the Lord's Supper, sometimes Eucharist, 
sometimes the church's or the believer's meal. Um, so as we're looking at the sacraments, I think it's important for us to get a good definition of the church. Because as we're talking about gathering, we're talking about gathering as a church. So why focus on baptism and the Lord's Supper? What does that have to do with gathering? And I think that becomes more apparent for us when we have a good working definition of a local church. And so a local church definition, uh, one that I like is, uh, is this. A local church is a group of believers who regularly gather together under the proclamation of the gospel through God's word and under the administration of the two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So at Easter, we looked at the road to Emmaus and Jesus's communication with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus did two things with those disciples. He proclaimed himself through scriptures. He proclaimed the gospel through the scriptures. And then he also reminded his disciples of the Lord's Supper when he broke bread at their table and they were able to recognize him. We talked about how this foreshadowed both the ministry of the word and the ministry of the sacrament. And that, that is the foundational definition of what a church is. We gather around the word and we gather at the table, the Lord's Supper, and then obviously in baptism too. Uh, when applicable. So in the vision series on gathering, we are focusing on the two sacraments specifically because without them, we would not really be a local church. Without them, we would not be able to make visibly. We are together united to Christ by faith. The sacraments, more than anything else, mark out the church of God and those who belong to the church of God. They make visible what is invisibly true of us. So our text today in 1 Corinthians, it's a chiasm. It's a mountain, right? There are parts to it. The A and the A, the beginning and the end, form the base of the mountain. And then they work their way up into the central section, which is the two um, B sections. So verses 17 through 22 outline the wrong actions of division during the church's partaking of the Lord's Supper. So it outlines division during the Lord's Supper. The very last section, verses 33 through 34, outline, well, how do you correct that? Well, you do right actions when you come to the Lord's table, and that brings about unity and not division. And at the, the top of the mountain, we find the table itself. Verses 23 through 26 recite the tradition of the Lord's Supper passed down to us from none other than Jesus himself, and then verses 27 through 32 calls on us to consider, to discern, and to judge rightly the body of Christ based on that tradition passed down to us from Jesus. Um, so before, uh, before we jump into our text, I think there's a, a helpful text that comes right before it in 1 Corinthians 10. Um, the way that I think of this is this is a, a pair of glasses through which you might be able to see Paul's words on the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11 a little bit more clearly. So 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 through 17, Paul writes this about the Lord's Supper. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many 
are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So the sermon title that I picked for this one is One Bread, One Church, One Christ. This is because when the New Testament speaks of the body of Christ, it speaks of the body of Christ in three ways. The first way, or not first in sequential order, but one way that it speaks of the body of Christ is the bread that Jesus delivers over to the disciples during the Lord's Supper. Jesus says, this is my body. Another way that it speaks of the body of Christ is quite literally Jesus' body, his incarnation, right? That God became a man. He had a body. Um, And then the third way that the Bible speaks of the body of Christ is applying it to all who are united to Jesus by faith. The church, the universal church, is also called the body of Christ. The bread reminds us of the incarnate body of Christ, and it also reminds us that by faith we are so united to him that we too are called the body of Christ. Uh, An ancient church theologian, Augustine of Hippo, um, that was a city in uh, North Africa, he called the truth that lay at the kind of the heart of this, he called this the total Christ, that Jesus along with the church is the total Christ, for he is the head and we are the body. Now here's what I think Augustine means and here's what I think Paul has at the backdrop of our text today. The very first words that he heard the Lord Jesus, here's the very first thing he heard the Lord Jesus say. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul then says, who are you, Lord? And the Lord returns, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You see, Saul threatened to lock up members of the church. A chapter before, he had presided over the death of Stephen. He, hold, he held, grammar, he held the cloaks and the, the coats of the men who literally picked up rocks to kill Stephen, the first martyr of the church. Paul was persecuting the church, and yet the first lesson he hears from Jesus is, why are you persecuting me? How does that work? The church is so united to Jesus by faith that what someone does to the church, someone does to Jesus himself. And that lies at the heart of the Lord's Supper when we're reading Paul's, uh, Paul's text in 1 Corinthians 11. So let's look at uh, some of these things. We're going to start at the base of the mountain. Uh, first, in verses 17 through 22, we're going to see that dividing the church, during the Lord's Supper in particular, dividing the church makes the Lord's Supper into our suppers. Dividing the church makes the Lord's Supper into our suppers. Paul writes this in verses 17 through 22. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses 
to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Um, So the first word that we see in the sentence is the word but. That's important because it's contrasting what Paul is saying here with what Paul just said in the first 16 verses of 1 Corinthians 11. In the first 16 verses, he's talking about head coverings. We're not going to dive into that today. However, whatever when, when Paul talks in that passage, he is actually commending the Corinthians. He's saying, you're doing good here. And then you get this word, but, in verse 17. But let me tell you something, somewhere where I cannot commend you. Something that is not good. Something that is the opposite of good. Um, so... Let me add this to this word commend. Behind it lies the Greek word for applause. And so it's this idea that when he says he doesn't commend it, it's not something that the Apostle Paul is applauding to. He doesn't agree with it. It's not something worthy of praise. That's kind of what's going on behind this. So the but contrasts with verses 1 through 16. And then we have this, he's not going to applaud to them. And then... He says this, when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. All right, so we have this kind of contrast of but, then we have this idea, he's not applauding, and then he's going to kind of explain, well, what, when, you, when you kind of understand in Greek, it is not for the better, but for the worse, starts the sentence. And so he's saying this whole line, and you're like, what's for the better? What's not for the better? What's for the worse? What, what are you talking about? And then at the very end of the sentence, he drops come together. So you're like, Paul, what are you contrasting with? Why are you not applauding us? Why is this for the worse when you come together? Which is a a pretty shocking statement. It's a mic drop. Your jaw should drop. Your hearts probably should drop into your boots. That's an old expression. Um, So it's not good. How can coming together be worse than not coming together? And I don't think we quite feel the weight just yet, so let's keep, let's keep going on. You might mistakenly be thinking, Paul is just talking about whenever believers gather, like for a community group or for a meal at someone's house, or maybe they're, they're going to, which is a wrong understanding of Matthew 18. But he's not just talking about these gatherings of believers. It's far worse. Repetition is a really good tool to have in your toolbox when you're talking about scripture, we find the verb, the words, come together five times in our text. We find it three times in verses 17 through 22. So look at verse 17, you see come together. Verse 18, you see come together as a church. Verse 20, you see come together again. Then we find it two times in the very last section of our text. Verse 33, come together to eat. And verse 34, come together. Two reasons the repetition of come together is important here. Uh, The first one is it highlights the chiasm, right? The first part connects to the last part. That's kind of a grammatical thing, a structural or form thing. The second thing is a little bit more important. By repeating come together, each time he's giving us further definition. He's defining what he means by the word come together. It's not just random coming together. So look at verse 18. When you come together as a church, 
Verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. Both of these give clarity to this verb come together, what Paul means here. He means, as Acts 20, verse 7 elsewhere describes, on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, when we were gathered together, that's equivalent to come together as a church, to break bread, to take the Lord's Supper, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. He prolonged his speech until midnight. That's something akin to preaching the Word of God. And yes, I plan to prolong my speech till midnight as well, so that that was a joke. Um, So come together here refers to the weekly gathering of the church on Sunday to break bread and to hear the word of God. And this makes Paul's shocking lack of applause even more shocking. When you gather as a church, it is not for the better but for the worse. What what would cause Paul to say such a shocking statement in the first place when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. So now he's moving into the real reason. When you come together, there's divisions among you. Feel, Feel kind of the weight again of this statement. A divided church in this sense, according to what Paul is saying here, is worse than no church. A divided church, in this sense, gathering together, is worse than no church. A divided church that meets is not for the better, but for the worse. In what sense is a divided church worse than no church? Our love and obedience adorn the gospel. They make the gospel look beautiful. They make the gospel appear as the gospel really is, right? The glory of God in the face of Christ. And in the same way that our obedience and love makes the gospel look beautiful, our division has a covering effect to the gospel. It doesn't make it look lovely. Um, I, I came up with a dog analogy because my wife loves dogs. Waiting for this dog that you love, right? And you're, you just want a hug. It's running up to you, it's, I don't know, it's a lab, and you, you love it, it's a pit bull lab. And this dog runs up to you, and as it gets closer and closer, you notice this dog is covered in dog dew. All of a sudden, this lovely thing that you were like, yes, come to me, ah! you run the other way. I, a little bit too much humorous, but that is the effect that disobedience and division can have on the gospel, which is so much more obviously lovely than a dog will ever be, that the glory of Christ might be covered, made to look less appealing, right, by our actions and our love for one another. This is what Paul means when division causes it to be a bad thing when we gather um, together. So Paul then is going to qualify division by stating something. He's going to qualify it. This is not what I mean. He says, this is not what I mean. He says, I believe it in part. So as to say, to some extent, this is always a reality. That division is always a reality. There's some extent in which you can't help but have division. That's kind of what he's going here. You see, the local church is always a mixed church. You'll have believers gathering. Sometimes you'll have unbelievers who are interested gathering. And then sometimes you'll have believers, people who think they're believers, but they're not really believers 
also gathering, right? This is a, a kind of mixed church, right? There's no fruit of repentance in some who gather, right? The visible church is always a mixed church. And this is, I think, why Paul's qualifying here. He says, there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So these factions, Paul's setting aside. He's not talking about that. He's saying, I believe that in part. That, that's true, always, to some extent. So what, what division does he mean since he doesn't have this division in mind? He explains in verses 21 through 22. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Um, end quote. So in the early church context, the kind of historical context of the first century Roman Empire, um, because the Corinthians are a Gentile church, right? So they have a lot of that kind of cultural backdrop. They're coming out of that kind of culture. So early on within the church, the Lord's Supper was celebrated within what was known as a love feast. So they would, they would have a meal, and then the Lord's Supper would kind of be the meal within the meal, right, so to speak. And that's a great idea. But what was happening is they were pulling in Roman, or I'll just say it this way, unbiblical ideas that contrast with the Lord's Supper itself. They were bringing those things in to the meal itself. And it was causing division. So let me, let me give a couple of examples. Uh, these examples come from um, the IVP Bible background commentary by Craig Keener and another guy named Gordon Fee in his, commentator, uh, his commentary. So it seemed that, according to these gentlemen, the Corinthians' love feasts were often divided up according to social economical standing. So... In the Roman tradition, if you were having a feast, this could happen in the actual structure of the house itself. Um, likely, Christians are gathering in, in, in uh, houses uh, of kind of more wealthy members. And in these houses, right, you had the dining room, and then you had the atrium. The dining room could fit a small number of people, and the atrium could fit a bigger number of people. They would put the more wealthy and socially more important in the dining room, and then they would take everyone else and kind of put them in the atrium. And this kind of practice could be what's behind Paul's verse 21. Each one goes ahead with his own meal. That quite literally, the meal itself is divided. Um, literally, in the Greek, it's each one has a private meal kind of thing um, there. So this meant that the dining room might start first, and they might have better and more food, and the atrium might start at a different time and have leftovers or lesser food. So then Paul writes, one goes hungry and another gets drunk. He's not trying to get us caught up on drunkenness or hunger, but rather he's using hyperbole to discuss right, that some people have more than they need and an overabundance, and they go beyond what they even need in the feast, and other people have nothing. They get nothing, right? And so there's division going on there. So these are the two extremes of the love feast. So again, not to get caught up on drunkenness and hunger, but rather to get caught up on the unevenness of the meal. Uh, another last kind of helpful background tidbit 
behind, uh, that might lie behind Paul's rebuke. Each one goes ahead with his own meal, his private meal. Taken along with verse 22's, you humiliate those who have nothing. This seems to refer to the church not waiting on certain members to actually arrive before they start the feast. And this likely would be most of the bond servants, right, who are still attending to their various jobs and duties, and then they have to come late to the meal, and the church has already started and has already commenced in doing the Lord's Supper. So you're humiliating, right, those who do nothing. So not only is your social status, right, when you're walking into this love feast highlighted by where you sit and how much food you have, but also by whether or not you're late for the meal. It's for the worse when the church gathers and has division. In fact, the Lord's Supper is not the thing that this church eats, according to Paul, but rather each one has his own meal. They've turned what belonged to the Lord and properly belonged to his body into something that only belonged to them. So Paul ends pretty strongly. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you? Shall I applaud in this? No, I will not. He ends this section by reminding them of his shocking lack of applause for their gathering. But here's a question for us. Why is this kind of division manifesting itself? Or or sorry, what am I saying? Why is this kind of division manifesting itself um, in the church so wicked? Why is it so wicked? Why does Paul have a problem with this kind of division if it's not self-explanatory? Paul then turns to that by quoting the words of Jesus in verses 23 through 26. So our second point is this, the body and blood of our Lord received and delivered. The body and blood of our Lord received and delivered. Paul writes, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we've arrived kind of to the heart of the chiasm, right? This passage and the next section make up the heart And Paul responds to this shocking display of division by essentially quoting the Lord's instituting of the supper itself. The text mostly reflects the Luke 22 um, account of the Lord's institution of the supper, uh, with very few exceptions. And going back to our definition of a church, being centered around the gospel and the sacraments, Paul uses the words received and delivered here. And that should or I'll say it this way, that is one of the oldest traditions in the New Testament of the church. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So this double usage of received and delivered by Paul here. He's linking the Lord's Supper to the gospel itself. It's the truth of the gospel. It's the gospel made visible. It's the word that we can see. 
So let's look at this a little bit um, behind what Jesus delivers to us in Luke 22 and Paul repeats here. First, we're going to look at some Old Testament context. There's a lot of Old Testament illusions, like an ocean just surrounding the Lord's Supper. And that'll help us go to our second thing. Look at the truth that the Lord's Supper itself proclaims. This truth that Paul received and has delivered to us. So that's like an Old Testament context. I'm going to point to three things, uh, three illusions. Uh, first, look at the, the, the phrase, when he was betrayed. So when I read that, I always read that as referring to Judas, right? When Jesus was betrayed. And then, you know, if that's what it's referring to. Uh, but that doesn't seem to be all that Paul has in mind. First, that phrase isn't in Luke 22, and so Paul is actually putting that into this passage. So Paul himself wants us to think about that phrase. And what's interesting about this, this was pointed out um, by G.K. Beale in his commentary of the Old Testament use of the New Testament, which is a great book. You should own it. Um, he points out that there's a Greek word behind this. The word is gave up, given up. When Jesus was given up, and that Paul is likely referring to Isaiah 53, the Greek version of Isaiah 53, when he uses this Greek verb, because that verb is also used in several places in Isaiah 53. I'm going to read two, two to you. Um, Isaiah 53, 6. The Lord gave him up for our sins. Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore, he shall inherit... Many, and he shall divide the spoils of the mighty because his soul was given up to death. And he was numbered amongst the transgressors, and he bore the sins of many and was given up because of their iniquities. And so Isaiah 53, right, is one of the clearest Old Testament prophecies about the crucifixion of Jesus on behalf to extend forgiveness for our sins. That, that when Jesus died, he died for our sins. And so Paul, before he even jumps into Jesus' instituting of the Lord's Supper, already has us thinking about the cross of Christ. That his death was for our sins. The second one, and this is the more obvious one, uh, the Lord's Supper was done by Jesus during the Passover meal. It was a meal within a meal. Uh, and we could talk about that for hours, but I'm just going to give a couple things. The Passover was instituted in light of the final plague or the final sign that God did to Egypt, the death of the firstborn. All who did not slaughter a lamb without blemish and take its blood and mark off their doorposts and eat the rest of the lamb before mourning, all who did not do this in Egypt lost their firstborn child as a result. The Passover feast was then instituted to remind the Israelites, the people of God, every year of their deliverance from Egypt through the death of Egypt's firstborn and through the blood of the lamb that led to their firstborn being spared. And so Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper in the midst of that meal. So as to say this, I am the fulfillment of what this meal pointed to all along. He introduces a meal within a meal, a meal that makes explicit what was merely implicit in the Passover feast. What, what, what is it that is explicitly made known? That Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Through Jesus' blood, we too are spared 
from the slavery of sin and certain death, that we too were delivered by the death of a firstborn, the death of God's firstborn son, Jesus. There's a third kind of Old Testament allusion here, and it's found in verse 25. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Language, E.K. Beale writes this, New covenant language fuses together with language of Jeremiah 31, sorry, it fuses together Jeremiah 31 and Exodus 24, 8, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. By fusing the two together, Jesus interprets his impending death as the sacrifice that establishes the new covenant associated with the final exodus. Jeremiah 31 discusses the new covenant. It says, here's some phrases from Jeremiah 31 about the new covenant. I, God speaking, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. It also says this, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And so you see, no longer by fusing it with Exodus, Paul is saying no longer is this accomplished, is, is eternal life accomplished by perfectly keeping and obeying the law, but rather this is accomplished through the death of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. All three of these Old Testament contexts point us to the reason why Paul uses Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper in response to the Corinthian division. All three of these allusions point us to the truth of the gospel. And so Paul wants us to dwell on this. This is my body, which is for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. In eating of the bread and drinking of the wine, we take into ourselves literally the signs which communicate to us the spiritual reality of the gospel, that Jesus' death on the cross was for you. That Jesus' blood that was poured out established a new covenant with you. That by faith in Christ, that by faith Christ is in us and we are in him. We take his body and blood into ourselves because he has taken our body and blood into himself. He was so united to us by faith that everything belonging to him is shared and communicated to us, his children his brothers, his sisters. It is here that the three bodies of Christ meet. In the one bread, we are reminded of the crucified Christ. And in eating the one bread by faith, we are reminded that we belong to him and that all his benefits belong to us, the body of Christ. And so here's some questions. Is Jesus the son of God? Well, we can answer because of the Lord's Supper. So to you are sons of and daughters of God? Is Jesus' righteousness perfect and spotless? Because of what he did on the cross, we can answer, so too you are declared righteous, perfect, and spotless. Does he sit at the right hand of God? So too you, brothers and sisters, have been raised and seated with him in the heavenly places. You see, at the table, we are called to see that we are with Christ and that where he is, we shall be. We are called to discern ourselves and of one another that the benefits of Christ 
have been properly applied to us and have clothed us in white robes, and that our sins have been washed away by the blood of our... At the cross is... We're called to see that since the ground at the cross is even ground, the ground at the table must also be even ground. That to divide at the table is to deny the truth of the gospel. And it's to this point that Paul now explains how we ought to approach the table, how we ought to take the Lord's Supper for the better and not for the worse. And so this is from 27 through 32. We need to discern both bodies in our participation of the supper. We need to discern both bodies in our participation of the supper. Paul writes, whoever therefore eats the bread and, or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the, the bread and the drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment for himself. For that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world, uh, end quote. So Paul now explains how we're to participate in the Lord's Supper worthily, communally, and safely. Worthily, communally, and safely. And these three things are tied together pretty tightly. Drinking in a worthy manner means drinking in a communal manner, which means drinking in a safe manner. Drinking in an unworthy manner denies the community of Christ and is quite unsafe. Verse 27 gives us the stakes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So what is an unworthy manner? That would be my, you know, first thing I asked when I read that. For many years, the church has kind of used 27 through 28 to kind of affirm to members that they ought to think of their lives, their, their walk with Christ, confess sins before they approach the table. That's kind of the traditional view that's used over and over. And as I was kind of engaging with people that are more in the 21st century, it seemed like a, a, another view that contrasted with that one. They would even say contradicted that one, uh, kind of took its place. They even, a lot of times, some of the more Liberal moderns would scoff at this idea. The argument kind of goes like this. Paul is correcting their errors, gathering around a supper by highlighting social economical differences and dividing the body that way. So as long as we're not doing that, we're doing it in a worthy manner. None of that kind of analyze your own hearts before Jesus, that doesn't, that doesn't matter. The problem is neither of these views taken alone sit well with the text. Neither of those views taken alone sit well with the text. Verses 17 through 22 cover the social, economical differences and divisions. But the heart of the text, 23 through 26, covers the Lord's institution of the supper for his disciples. And that is very much about him taking their sins, right? Him taking our sins upon himself. It's very much about our relationship with God in regards to sin. So both of those things are very much in the context. And this is just a side note that's always important with the Bible. The form that scripture takes is as important as the content 
Scripture presents. So when we look at the form that this Scripture takes, it starts with division and ends with union, and it has to pass through the Lord's Supper, particularly Jesus' death for our sins. And so we see the social, we see the horizontal, and we see the vertical in the form of this text. But there's another tension besides vertical and horizontal. There's a tension of individual and communal. Individual and community. Look at verse 28. Let a person examine himself, then so eat the bread and drink the cup. Here we find the individual examining himself to which I take Paul to, you know, He's quoting the Lord's institution of the Lord's Supper, and he's examining himself before the cross of Christ. So, you, so you know, he's saying things like, do I believe in Christ? Do I see him offering to me the forgiveness of sins? Do I trust this message that Jesus delivers me from my, from my sins? Do I trust that his blood puts me in covenant with God? But this individual and vertical focus in line 28 is then counterbalanced by 31. So look at 31. Would not we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. All of a sudden, it's not the individual looking at his own heart, but it's the body judging the body. Both of those things are brought together in balance. So it's not let each one examine himself, but we are examining ourselves. It's a communal emphasis. Our examining of ourselves individually is taken up collectively as we judged ourselves truly, according to Paul. So how are the individual and the community and the vertical and the horizontal components, how are these all held together in the supper? We find it in our pair of glasses that I mentioned in 1 Corinthians 10, 16. Uh, which says the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake in one bread. And so we're brought back again to this truth. Body means multiple things. That Jesus associates the body of Christ with multiple things. The bread, Jesus' humanity, and the church united to Christ by faith. So Paul uses this total Christ, this Jesus and the church, in verse 29, which brings all of these things together. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. What does it mean to, to discern the body? Does he mean the incarnation? Does he mean discerning that Jesus really did die on the cross? That his blood really was shed for the forgiveness of our sins? The answer is yes, it does mean that. But does he also mean the church? Discerning that by faith, one another, we are all united to Christ. That we too are called and declared the body of Christ. The answer is yes. So whoever does not discern the church via causing division over social economical factors or anything outside of Christ for that matter, drinks judgment. And whoever does not discern Jesus' broken body and poured out blood in his death on the cross, drinks judgment. They're both brought together in that word body. So practically, what does that mean for us? When taking the supper, we ought to preach to ourselves, again, the precious gospel truth. 
Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins and to bring us back to God. But we also ought to examine our fellow brothers and sisters so as to make sure that we are not putting up walls between us and them, that we're not causing division between us and them, that there's no us and them through his death and resurrection. He offers freely to them in his death and resurrection, that because we've been forgiven of our sins by faith, they too have been forgiven of their sins by faith. Because we've been declared righteous because of Jesus' death, they too have been declared righteous. Because Jesus welcomes them to the table, his death and resurrection, we ought to welcome them to the table. So we ought to, we ought to also examine our fellow brothers and sisters to give a quick note calls a division. Before moving kind of to the final section, I want to give a quick note on safety and alert, if you will, because I said alert last week and that alerted people. Um, taking the supper improperly, according to Paul, is not safe. Violating the supper by not believing in the gospel and or by being a source of improper division within the church eschews the meaning of the supper. It changes the meaning of the supper, and it's not a safe matter. Paul says it's a matter of judgment. He uses the word judgment. That's why I use the word judgment. So here's another example of repetition. Judgment shows up four times in kind of the end of our section here in 31 and 32. Uh, we judged ourselves and would not be judged are in 31. And then in 32, you have judged by the Lord and not be condemned along with the world. Condemned doesn't look like the word judgment. In Greek, it's the word judgment. And so Paul uses judgment four times. And, and, and what is he talking about? Well, Paul is prophetically speaking. He's saying, hey, you guys are taking the supper improperly. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Paul attributes frailty, sickness, and even death to the Lord's judgment because the Corinthians had failed to take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. They had failed to see the benefits of Christ on their behalf, and more importantly, in this context, they had failed to apply the benefits of Christ to everyone in the church as well. They had started separating themselves by things that Christ himself does not separate us through. They were looking down upon other believers on a place that was meant to be even ground, the Lord's table, because it points us to the cross. So hear the apostles' warning that the supper is for all believers. And I had to throw in a Narnia quote because I think this gets across the safety part. Um, Lucy asks uh, Mr. Beaver, she says, is he safe? Talking about Aslan. And Mr. Beaver responds, of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. And that's something like what Paul's going to do here because we're looking at people dying over the Lord's Supper. That doesn't seem good, right? Judgment sounds bad. But then Paul goes on to assure us that our King Jesus is good. Look at verse 32. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Disciplined is a, a term used usually between parents and their children out of love. 
right? And Jesus here is now, he's judging the misconduct of the Corinthians in the Lord's Supper, not that he might destroy them, but rather that he might save them. We treat the supper, right, the Corinthians, they, they treat the supper flippantly by not discerning his body and blood on their behalf or on other people's behalf. And Jesus, in turn, saves them, disciplines them, make, treats them like they're his children. So Paul concludes the chiasm with our fourth and final point, and this is a short point. In 33 through 34, he gives practical answers to the first section that we can unite, uniting the church by eating. When you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. So Paul does not urge them to abandon their love feast uh, as a, a context for the Lord's Supper to take place in. Neither does he command them to continue having their love feast. What he commands them to do is that whatever they do, that they reform the love feast or they abandon the love feast, that they take the Lord's Supper in a worthy, communal, safe manner. The most uh, repeated way in which, uh, well, let me look at this. Look at the, the phrase, after so then, because I, sk I skipped this the first time I read the text. So then, my brothers. I don't know if that hits you. Paul says, my is not sweet. Sweet and important words to end a section that is not sweet. Paul began his, his conclusion with these significant words, my and brothers, the truth of the Lord's Supper itself. The most repeated way that believers are referred to in relation to one another in the New Testament, brothers. Like many languages, the masculine plural is a way to, to, to refer to mixed groups. So brothers and sisters are included in this phrase. So Paul reaffirms to the Corinthians a great truth of the supper. In Christ, we are family. When you come together, when you gather as a church family, wait for one another. Make no silly divisions, for, for Christ has torn down both silly and serious divisions between them and us. Paul reminds them again of this truth and ties it to the sacraments of the church. And just one chapter later, Paul does the very same thing. And I'm going to end with this. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Our baptism reminds us of being united to Christ by faith, and our eating and drinking reminds us that we were all made to drink of one spirit. For we are one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, for there is one bread, one church, one Christ. Let's pray. Father, um, today as we approach the table, uh, we ask that you would help us to discern that Jesus really did die on the cross for our sins. 
Not, not just for other people's sins, but for our sins. Not just for our sins in the past, but our sins in the very present. The sins that we committed maybe even this very morning. That Jesus really did die for our sins. That we might be brought back to you. That Jesus' blood really does place us in a right relationship with you. Lord, I pray that we would discern this great truth. And Father, I pray that we would also discern this great truth on behalf of our brothers and our sisters in a word that we would love one another. Because the same things that you declare over us, you declare over all who believe in Jesus Christ. We pray that the supper would be a uniting place, a place where we see the unity of Jesus' body flourish. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so the, I'm going to invite the band to, to come up, and we're going to continue worshiping by singing to Jesus. Um, during this first meal, we invite all baptized believers to come up and to get the bread and the wine or grape juice. If you're new here, make sure you get a cup of bread and a cup of wine or grape juice. Sometimes that's tricky. Um, at the end of this song, I'll come back up. The sun's good, and it's our proclamation of Jesus' death until he comes. It's our sign that we belong to the body of Christ, and it's also the very message that invites us to belong to the body of Christ. And even more important than all of that, the supper is God's promise of life to us by the death and resurrection of Jesus, his broken body and his precious poured out blood. Before we actually start singing, I wanted to take time because the text doesn't answer directly who should take the supper. But I wanted to answer that question that, and teach kind of what Remedy um, teaches concerning who should take the Lord's Supper. All right, so I just, this will be brief. It's not a sermon. It's not a second sermon. Um, so we say for years, we invite all baptized believers. At Remedy, we, have a, a, we practice what is called modified open communion. Modified open communion. This is distinguished from different various views of communion. I'll give a couple. Closed communion, which means only those who are members of the church come and take the Lord's Supper. That's closed communion. Close, drop the D, close communion. Um, this means... Anyone who's been baptized by immersion after their profession of faith. So this would be basically any true Baptist would be invited to the table. And then there's open communion, which doesn't bar it at all. Anyone can come. You know, you should believe in Jesus, but anyone can come. We are modified open communion. So let me explain what this means. Um, we, we, we admit to the table anyone who has been water baptized um, in another manner other than by immersion after the profession of their faith, as long as their conscience is clear regarding their water baptism. So an example would be if you were baptized as an infant and you believe conscientiously that that's what the Word of God teaches, and you, you can take the Lord's Supper as well. That's a modified, open uh, position. So we teach and encourage at Remedy we teach and encourage that you be baptized by immersion after a profession of your faith. 
and we teach that this is what Scripture says about uh, baptism, but we also recognize that there are those who are born again and conscientiously believe differently in this regard and that they should not be barred from the table. So when we say uh, baptized believers, that's what we mean um, as elders here at Remedy. All right.